Ezra chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam Mithredath, Tabil and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rahim, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahim, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges, the officials over the men from Tripolis, Persia, Eric and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honorable Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates. This is a copy of the letter they sent him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the man of Trans-Euphrates. The king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute or duty will be paid, and the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. In these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place of rebellion from an ancient times. This is why the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in Trans-Euphrates. The king sent this reply. To Rahim the commanding officer, Shimshai the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates, greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? As soon as a copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rahim and Shimshai, the secretary and the associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's pray, shall we? 
Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word. We pray as we uh, delve into it now in this uh, passage of scripture that uh, by your word and spirit you would be informing our minds and transforming our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometimes Christians can be thought of as being a little bit too narrow-minded. And uh, let's face it, uh, sometimes we are, aren't we? Um, Especially on issues which matter more to us than what they matter to God. Uh, However, sometimes it's right to be narrow-minded, especially when the issue is how do fallen people like us get right with a holy God? Uh, Jesus once said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That sounds pretty narrow, don't you reckon? Uh, because it's saying that there's, there's only one way that a person can have a relationship with God and that is through Jesus. Uh, one of the reasons people feel uncomfortable about that is because uh, they realise the implications of it. They realise what it's saying Because the implication is that if Jesus is the way to God, then all other ways are not the way to God. Other religions are not the way to God. Even the kind of popular Australian folk religion of, you know, if you just try to do good, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, or even be religious and perform ceremonies and rituals that somehow that that can get you to heaven... And so when Jesus says that no one comes to the Father except by me, people think, well, that's just too narrow-minded. I've even heard church leaders say that uh, and even speak against those within the church who actually believe the claim that Jesus made. And that can be disappointing, can't it, Uh, when you hear church leaders saying that, especially when we think of who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross. So how, how should we respond to that sort of thing? You know, this is not a unique issue to us in our generation. This is an issue which has always faced God's people um, right through history, uh, right even through the Bible and uh, even in the Old Testament. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this, this little kind of obscure book in the Old Testament called Ezra and today we're going to look at chapters 4 through to 6. If you'd like to have that open in your Bibles you'll find that handy and there is an outline of the uh, talk in your service sheets which uh, can help you if you want to take notes. It can also help you if you want to know how much longer we've got to go in this talk and uh, so you might want to uh, care to have a look at that. Uh, In chapter 4 today, we see that the the context is that last week we saw that um, the the Jews had been taken out of the land that God had given them and that they had been uh, taken into exile in Babylon, which is uh, Babylon's kind of modern-day Iraq. And uh, we saw saw that the Jews uh, had returned to Jerusalem Um, because the Persian king Cyrus had allowed them to return. They'd returned from exile in in Babylon. And what we see today is that they had to wrestle with that same problem, that that idea that it doesn't really matter, you know, which God you you believed in. Um, 50,000 Jews had made the trek 
from exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem, uh, which was desolate. It was a barren wasteland at the time, uh, in order to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. When they got there, they discovered that they were not alone. Again, last week we were reminded that um, centuries earlier, when the Assyrians had come and invaded uh, the northern part of Israel, uh, that they had deported the people of the northern part of Israel into Assyria and they had repopulated uh, Israel with their own people, with the Assyrians, uh, some of whom intermarried with um, uh, Jewish, uh, with um, is Israelites who had remained, and those people eventually became the Samaritans, who we read about in the New Testament. And so, when these people, the 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 people who were actually already living in the land, uh, when they saw the Jews uh, returning and rebuilding the temple, what did they do? Uh, well, let's have a look at that. In chapter 4, verse 2, they offered to lend a hand. Do you see what they said? Uh, let me read it to you. They, it says, They came to Zerubbabel, who's the leader of the, the Jews, uh, Jeshua, and to the heads of the families, and they said, Let us help you build, because like you we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezra-Haddon, king of Assyria, who bought us here. That sounds like a great offer, doesn't it? I mean, you know, all hands on deck, many hands like make light work, why wouldn't you accept it? And they say, well, look, we, we, we worship, we seek after the God of Israel as well, and we worship him. But their offer was knocked back. In, in verse 3, the Jewish leaders said, uh, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Now, you know, they sound a bit narrow-minded, don't they? They, want to, they, they, they don't want to let them help. They reject these people who claim to worship the Lord. Now, did they really worship the Lord? Well, in one sense they did. Let me explain. Uh, in the book of 2 Kings, in chapter 19, uh, when the Assyrians did start to live in the land, in Israel, there was an incident where some lions attacked some people and ate them, you know, killed them. And so the king of Assyria at the time sent a priest to them in order to teach them how to worship the God of that land um, and how to make that, the God of that land happy. That is, they worship the Lord as if he was just like some other local God, uh, like some other pagan God, like all the others. And so when they, helped, when they offered to help to rebuild the temple, the Jews said, look, thanks but no thanks. Now, these days, some people would say that's just plain narrow-minded. But was the offer even genuine? How are they described? How are these people described in chapter 4, verse 1? Can you see that? Anyone tell me? Just call out. How are they described? What's the description of these people who are living in the land? Um, 
They are the enemies. They're, they're actually enemies of God's people. And, and so, in, and this is what we see throughout chapters 4, 5 and 6, that um, they, they didn't want the temple to be rebuilt. They wanted to sabotage it. And in fact, we read in these chapters of what they did to try to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem and its temple. Now, remember that the great empire that, that uh, ruled uh, in the ancient Near East at that time uh, was, was not Assyria, uh, and it was no longer Babylon, uh, it was now Persia. And friends, the Persian, the Persian Empire was a highly sophisticated civilization, uh, not only in art and culture, but also in government and administration. Uh, one historian I read uh, said this about the Persians at that time, and I quote, he said, for the first time in known history, an empire almost as extensive as the United States received an orderly government a competence of administration, a web of swift communication, a security of movement by men and goods on majestic roads, equaled before our time only by the zenith of imperial Rome. See what it's saying? This was actually the most sophisticated um, civilization uh, apart from Rome before our time. Um, the Persian Empire was great. And we see some evidence of that orderly government and the uh, competent administration in these actual chapters of Ezra. Uh, basically, because the enemies of God's people wrote some formal petitions to the uh, Persian king. And in chapter 4, verse 5, they employed counsellors to help them to frustrate the building work. Now, um, who, who do you think these counsellors were? They were not psychologists, right? Uh, they, were, they, were, they were more like lawyers or at least um, um, bureaucrats. Uh, the opposition uh, to the rebuilding of Jerusalem spanned for over one century. And uh, on your outlines there, I've actually listed... Uh, the various Persian kings which covered that period. Although I noticed that I've missed out um, Artaxerxes there. So you can go home and look up where Artaxerxes fits into that list of um, Persian kings. Uh, the temple was completed in the time of King Darius, but the city uh, was not finished until King Artaxerxes. In Ezra chapters 4 to 6, we have two examples of formal letters which they wrote during that time. The first formal letter is in chapter 4, verse 11 to 16, and it's to the later king, Artaxerxes. Let me, I'm going to read some of that for you again. Uh, chapter 4, have a look at verse 11, if you can see the little number there, 11. It says, This is a copy of the letter they sent to him, to King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of Trans-Euphrates. The king should know that the Jews who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, 
The king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute or duty will be paid and the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonoured, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. Uh, in these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place of rebellion from ancient times. I mean, they ought to be talking. <laughs> They're ancient to us. Um, that is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you'll be left with nothing in Trans-Euphrates. Now, you can see the advantage of paying for professional advice, can't you? Uh, because the, uh, the lawyers here, they know exactly how to, uh, how to get the king's attention. Uh, you tell him that he's going to lose some taxes. That's how you do it that the economy is going to suffer. The Persian idea was to give nations of their empire uh, lots of freedom uh, so that they would be thankful to the Persians and enjoy being part of the empire and not be so rebellious. But see how Jerusalem is described. They tell the king that if he checks the archives, he'll learn that historically Jerusalem has been a rebellious city which did not pay the money to the nations when they conquered them, to the Babylonians and to the Assyrians. And that was why the Babylonians destroyed them. That's a fact in 587 BC. So in verses 17 to 23, the king issued an order for the work of re the rebuilding of Jerusalem to stop. Now, the second formal letter... Uh, is in chapter 5, verses 6 to 17. And this is a flashback to the time of King Darius um, before the temple was completed. Let me read just part of it for you. Um, uh, chapter 5, verse 6. Pick it up there. Chapter 5, verse 6. It says, This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozenai and their associates, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. The report they sent, sent, read, they sent him read as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorised you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? Did you get your development application in? Was, did it go through council? Was it processed properly? We also asked them their names so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. They're dobbing them in. This is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. Who was that, by the way? That was King Solomon. Correct. But because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. 
However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, uh, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. Now, why had Jerusalem been destroyed? Well, because it was a rebellious city. But the question is, rebellious against who? Sure, um, it was against, they were rebellious against the Assyrians and the Babylonians. At a political level, that was correct. But at a spiritual level, under the surface, these returnees had now been humbled by their exile. They understood now that the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC was not just political, but it was spiritual. Because who had their forefathers rebelled against? They'd rebelled against God. They had not loved and honoured and obeyed God as they should. Their forefathers had mixed the, the worship of the Lord with the worship of, of other pagan gods. The very thing that the people who were offering to help rebuild the temple were now doing. And so in this letter to King Darius, in verse 17... The opponents of God's people ask the king to check the archives. Check out what these people were like. And in doing so, he was able to check whether or not an issue uh, that King Cyrus had issued a decree allowing the Jews to return and to rebuild Jerusalem and its temple. Now here we see some more evidence of the good system of Persian government. Um, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Let me read that to you. King Darius then issued an order and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury of Bab at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ekpatana in the province of Media and this was written on it. Memorandum. How about that, eh? Memorandum. Just like <clears throat> we do these days. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices and let its foundations be laid. There's the proof. That was the decree of King Cyrus. And in chapter 6 here, we see that King Darius would now honour that decree... And so he writes back to the governor who had written to him. I want to just point out three things from his letter of reply. Um, first of all, um, verse 7. He says, Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its side. What's he saying there? He's saying, back off. Leave him alone. Let them do the job. And secondly, check out the punishment for anyone who dared to amend that decree, uh, who actually you know, did not want to obey that decree. In verse 11, he says, Furthermore, I decree that if anyone changes this edict, this is what's going to happen to them, a beam is to be pulled from his house and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. 
You know, you've got to hand it to the ancients. They didn't muck around, did they? There's justice there. And for this crime, and just for, you know, so just for added emphasis, his house is to be made a pile of rubble. I reckon anyone with half a brain would get with the program, don't you? Because uh, if that's what the king of Persia said, that's what he would actually do. Now, thirdly, you've got to ask why King Darius would support the Jews. Uh, and well, in verse 10, it's because he wants the Jews to pray that things would go very well for him and for his sons. So he may not have actually believed in the God of Israel, but he was happy to have a bet each way. That's politics. But friends, throughout these chapters, below the surface, what we see is the silent hand of God is at work. It was God's will for the temple to be rebuilt, as we saw last week. The temple itself is nothing, it's just a building. It actually points us to Jesus, who is God in the flesh. But it should be something which is of real encouragement to us, because as you and I go about uh, doing the work of God, uh, especially sharing the good news of Jesus with, with people, sometimes we're going to be opposed. Uh, we'll be opposed by those who don't love God. But God's work will never be stopped because it's God's work. And so in chapter 6, verse 15, the temple was finally finished uh, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And, you know, when you finish building a building, you usually have an opening ceremony, don't you? Um, what did they do? Well, in order to celebrate that, they... They shared the Passover together. They shared that meal, uh, which helps them to remember that night uh, long ago in Egypt uh, when uh, the judgment of God passed over the households uh, which were covered with the, the blood of a sacrificial lamb, allowing them the exodus from, from Egypt. And as we finish, you'll be glad to hear that, won't you? Um, as we finish, I want you to look closely at who was involved in that Passover. Um, chapter 6, verse 21. It reads, So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbours in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. Who celebrated the Passover? Um, who was included as belonging to the people of God? Were they just the Jews? No. It was Jews and all others, anybody who met two conditions. Firstly, they turned away from idolatry and sin. And secondly, they turned towards the true God, the God of Israel. So were these Jews narrow-minded? Yep, they certainly were. Uh, when others who worshipped other gods wanted to help rebuild the temple, they would not compromise. But when people came to them with a humble heart, sincerely, genuinely seeking after the true God, they were warmly received. Not just by the Jews, but by God himself. 
Christians are sometimes considered to be narrow-minded uh, when we say that there is only one true God and that the only way to get right with him is through his son Jesus. Uh, and sometimes, as I mentioned, the people who say this are actually found inside the church. A few years back there was a, um, a Christian leader who came to Port Macquarie and uh, he was speaking publicly at a, at a public event uh, where he said that there are multiple ways um, that you can get to God. Um, he said that uh, God reveals himself to Muslims through Muhammad, God reveals himself to Christians through, through Jesus. I'm sure he would have said uh, he reveals himself to Buddhists through Buddha and you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, so long as you're sincere about it. But you can be sincerely wrong. Why is it that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life? Well, it's because he died on the cross. And by so doing that he has achieved for us that which we could not do for ourselves. He's paid the penalty for our sin. I mean, what do you think? You know, if there was any other way for sinful people to get right with God, don't you think God would have utilised that other way? Don't you think he would have done that? Wouldn't you spare your son if there was another way that that could happen? But a sacrifice for sin did need to be paid. The only sufficient sacrifice was God's own son. No one, says Jesus, comes to the Father except by me. Sounds narrow, doesn't it? Of course it is. But you can, be, you can afford to be narrow. In fact, you, you must be narrow when it's true. How do we know it's true? Because Jesus was raised from the grave. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And because it is true, it means that uh, just as in the days of Ezra, that God's saving love is wide and it is open. It's open to anyone who turns back to God. It's anyone who puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's love, friends, is very, very wide. It's wider than the east is from the west. <laughs> and it's so wide because, it's because he, his love is wide because his truth is narrow. His truth is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for um, the, the width and the depth of your love in Jesus. Uh, we uh, thank you for the way that you worked through your ancient people Israel, uh, how you showed your faithfulness to them and how uh, even the temple itself points to Jesus who is God come in the flesh. Father, we pray for ourselves that you would help us to be uh, faithful to you and to tell others of your wide and generous uh, love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.